0: Do you manage your own IT for distributed teams in Asia? You know how painful it is. Essaval helps your in house team by taking tough tasks off their hands and giving them the tools to manage IT effectively. Get help across eight countries in Asia Pacific, which includes onboarding, procurement, device management, real time IT support, offboarding, and more. Gain full control of all your IT infrastructure in one place with our state-of-the-art platform. Check out e s e v e l dot com, and get a demo today. Use our referral code BRAVE for three months free. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to BRAVE. Be inspired by the best leaders of Southeast Asia tech. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. I'm Jeremy Al, a VC, founder, and father. Mondays for no BS commentary on the latest startup news with Shuyen Ko, managing partner of Hustle Fund. Thursdays for in-depth interviews of changemakers across the region sharing about the highs and lows of their lives. Join us and over 10,000 subscribers at www.bravesea.com for transcripts, analysis, and community. Hey, Clemens. Really excited to have you on the show. There's a lot of questions in the world about impact investing, growth equity, what happened to the stock market and technology, and what happened to emerging markets slash Southeast Asia, right? And I think you are the perfect person to shine the big spotlight that talks about the facts and about what's actually going on. So Clemens, could you share a little bit about yourself?
1: Absolutely. First of all, thank you, Jeremy. Thanks for having me on. It's really a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on this podcast. So I'm a growth equity investor at IFC, the International Finance Corporation, which is part of the World Bank. And the World Bank's mandate is the reduction of poverty in developing countries or emerging markets, as some people call them. The World Bank is engaged in a lot of activities. As you can probably imagine, it's a big organization. There is the traditional World Bank side, which works with governments. So with the public sector. And then there's the IFC where I work, which invests in the private sector. And the IFC is engaged in a lot of activities too. There is a large part that invests in infrastructure and in energy projects. A lot of investments are debt. There is a venture team. There is a fund investing team. And I personally work in the growth equity team, which means I focus on transactions on companies that have grown and matured out of the venture phase but are still not large enough to attract large debt financings.
0: So how did you get into investing, right? I mean, you studied at London School of Economics, you went to Columbia University, and then later on you were going to Harvard Business School for your MBA. But how did you get into investing? Because, you know, I think a lot of folks are like, yeah, I want to join a company. Or folks are like, I want to build something. And then some people are like, I want to invest, which is very different from I want to be a banker, right? Tell me more about how private equity investing came about.
1: It's a great question, and it actually just happened, frankly, because I grew up in Austria. I'm actually Austrian. I grew up in Vienna, and my father is a doctor. So growing up, I didn't really know anything about finance or private equity or investment banking for that matter. In fact, when I studied in London, my first internship at Goldman Sachs was in investment banking. I didn't really know what investment banking was, and I learned what a merger was, and people asked questions about EBITDA, and I didn't know if that's something to eat or whatever it is, right? So I happened to like slide into that, but my first internship was really exciting. And I, I realized that there are a lot of aspects to the job that I really enjoyed. There is a lot of working with companies. It's not just sitting behind a computer screen. And in my second year, I had a summer internship that I shared between private equity and investment banking or traditional m And I really, really enjoyed the investing side. What I really enjoyed more about it was it's very goals oriented. You don't really work for a client. You work for whatever you think are interesting things that you want to learn about and know about this company. And you focus on the things that are essential or important and have to discern those. And that's actually part of the work that I really enjoyed. When I graduated from school, my first job was at private equity at Newberger Berman in the New York office, where I spent four years. Then I spent two years at CDNR, Clayton, Dubula, and Rice, also in New York, where I worked on large cap transactions. And then I went to business school, where we met for the first time, and then joined Bing Capital and then IFC. And when I think back on what led me to this path to IFC and investing with impact, it's actually pretty interesting because my first job at Newberg Berman, I spent mostly investing in the Americas. So a large aspect was investing in more mature companies in North America, but I also helped build a Latin America strategy, which invested in more emerging and growth equity, earlier stage companies in Latin America. And I found that aspect of investing really, really exciting. And after two years at CDNR, where I worked on, on large cap LBOs, before going to business school, business school kind of forces upon you this consideration of what do you want to do in life? What do you want to do with your one wild and precious life? What is your goal in life and your motivation? And I tried to be really introspective because until then, I hadn't really thought about it, right? I kind of slid into initial investment banking and then investing. And I never really looked left and right and thought about what am I passionate about, what I want to do. And then I invested in Latin America. And the fund that we raised and built had purely financial goals. It was not an impact fund. I mean, back then, nobody was really talking about impact investing. It was purely driven by us trying to find the best returns for our investors. But now looking back, every investment that we did was an impact investment, right? We helped build schools and hospitals and logistics in Brazil, in Colombia, in Peru. And I found that kind of investing extremely rewarding because when you go there and you see a school and suddenly there are children studying in a school that you built and their teachers hired with the money that you provided and your nurse is being hired in the hospital. And at the same time, you're actually achieving returns for your investors. To me, how can it be any better than that? That's when I went really introspective. That's what I chose I wanted to do with my life coming out of business school. And so after business school, I joined Bing Capital with the intention of raising a billion dollar emerging markets, growth equity fund. We hired a great team and we invested globally, very opportunistically. We invested in in India in Vietnam and Pakistan and South Africa. Eventually it was decided strategically not to pursue that fundraiser anymore. So we invested just with partner capital, which then led me to, to move out of Bain Capital. I would say, looking back, a difficult decision for me to make which is, should I stay at Bain Capital? I had the opportunity to move to to other parts of Bain. Should I just go back to North American large-cap private equity? Or should I follow my heart and my passion and be stubborn about what I want to do, which is emerging markets, growth equity investing, with a positive development impact to local communities? And I stuck with that. I stuck with the latter. So I moved to IFC, where I now oversee growth equity investments across Southeast Asia, focused on emerging markets countries.
0: So you say something about how it feels amazing to be helping build schools and obviously generating return. That feels contrarian. I mean, isn't investing bad? Isn't capital bad? Like, I mean, I think that's a very strong view, right? That you know the financial system is broken, that it generates bad outcomes. So how is it that growth equity plays a role in society in the things that we see today?
1: I think that's a great question. And I think a lot of people have been asking that and And I'm not sure there is a very clear answer, but I think what we can first of all do is we can separate developed markets from emerging markets. In developed markets, you generally have abundance of capital. Of course, there's allocation issues where exactly geographically within the United States does the money go and then which communities and which groups and male founders, female founders. I I understand all of that is complicated, but generally there is enough capital available. In emerging markets, you don't have that. You generally don't have enough capital available. So when you look at smaller companies that are growing fast, hospitals or schools that are expanding rapidly, for the most part, they don't have the growth capital to expand. They're too small for bank financing, but there is not enough equity to go around to help them expand. So there's this kind of like fundamental difference. And in, in that sense, when I think back on the investments that we did in Latin America when I was at Newberger Berman, we were not an impact fund. We weren't thinking about that. I mean, maybe we should have, but, but we didn't. That was not a topic back then. We're purely looking for returns, which we achieved, but at the same time, all this impact was created by just simply thinking about where can you invest in fundamentally strong businesses. There are a lot of fads and a lot of strategies trying to gain a quick win, and I'm I'm not against them at all. But when you really think about how do you want to create value for 10 years, I can't tell you how Bitcoin or crypto will develop or whether a certain HR software will be used in five years or not. But what I can tell you is that there's billions of people in emerging markets that are growing in population size rapidly, that will need a lot more healthcare, a lot more education and a lot more logistics and manufacturing and industrial capacity over the next five to 10 years. And if you help build that, I think that is impact in of itself. And we can talk a lot about how to label impact and how it's differentiated from traditional investing. But I think even if you forget about the impact angle for now, and you think about just traditional fundamental investing and building businesses, I think a lot of that can be tremendously impactful and has been impactful in emerging markets.
0: That's a great piece about separating those two ways, right? And emerging markets is a shortage of capital, right? And there's a rotation of capital. So I think there's a little bit of a question for folks, right? Which is like, why is there a shortage of capital? Shouldn't all that arbitrage just be automatically solved and arbitraged out in a single day, just type it on a laptop and hit the mouse button and then you're done, right? So what's changing to this imbalance or this arbitrage component?
1: I totally agree with you. And I think there should be. I think there should be a lot more flows into emerging markets. I think there is an, I don't know if you call it arbitrage, but I think there's a huge untapped investment opportunity in emerging and frontier markets. I hope that investors will wake up to that and realize that because it's really a large, large opportunity. It is obviously complicated. Emerging markets uh, investing is not particularly easy. And I will now not talk about public markets investing because it's its own animal. But when you look at the private returns, the private equity returns, they have not been particularly good historically in emerging markets. So that is definitely one aspect. So if you're an allocator, you're a large pension fund, a large insurance fund, and you're trying to discern where you're investing, well, you have US and Europe and and tech and, and venture. And then you have emerging markets, which at least you perceive, whether it's true or not, as higher risk, but with lower returns, that's a very tough trade-off to make for an allocator. And I always think it's still attractive for various reasons, but when you just look at the historical numbers, the returns in emerging markets investing are lower than in developed markets. So an investor might think, I'm not going to invest with higher risk at lower returns. And obviously there is more trade, but I think that's what it seems like to a lot of institutional investors and allocators.
0: But why is it that returns are worse? Because you just said it yourself, right? You know, there's so many things to build, there's schools, there's teachers, there's so many opportunities, infrastructure, but then you just said, wait, returns are worse in the emerging markets, right? So what's going on here?
1: So a key issue is scale. So a lot of emerging markets funds, and I'm not talking about larger funds in, in, in China, which now is often excluded from what we consider emerging or frontier countries. But in the new emerging or frontier countries, generally funds are smaller and there is a scale issue. And there's obviously economies of scale for private equity funds because diligence costs are expensive, especially in emerging markets where you don't have as much access to information as would be in the United States or in Western markets. So the diligence costs would have to be spread over, over larger size tickets in order to be more lucrative. So there are economies of scale for that. And there is a second aspect to that actually where Local funds have the advantage of having local teams being very well plugged in, having great access to deal flow. However, they also increase the risk because you are limited to only one country, one currency. So There's currency risk, there's regulatory risk, there's just political risk. If you were you know, a Ukraine fund, and Ukraine actually, in my first internship, we looked into investing in Ukraine. It was a very promising market after the orange revolution. If you're purely Ukraine fund, you can't expect an invasion, right, suddenly to happen. There are definitely risks to being a smaller local fund as well. And on top of that, it often does not allow you to shift your strategy to be opportunistic. So if you were a pan-regional Asia fund, you could decide, well, right now Vietnam is really attractive. And then maybe in a couple of years, it's more Indonesia and it might be Thailand in a few years. Um, But if you really only focused on one country, you don't really have that opportunity and it's forced to deploy your capital into one place. Again, it obviously has advantages of being local, of having access to the local deal flow, but you are increasing the risk by this lack of diversification. And that is actually a big reason of the lower returns is this kind of layering of risks. Professor Neil Gregory, professor at Johns Hopkins Business School and also the thought leader of IFC's impact investing, and I co-wrote an article with him. That was published in Impact Alpha. And it was about this layering of risks where a lot of emerging markets investors take too much risk per investment, right? So if you invest in one country that might be a volatile country with a volatile currency in an early stage business with not a proven technology, then you have too many risks in one investment, even if you think the the base case looks promising. So that is an issue as well. Part of it is also an experience problem. And there's a lot of very smart investors in emerging markets. There's absolutely no doubt about that but many of them don't have the training and the best practices and the reps that a lot of you know, large cap firms in the US, for example, have. right? Some of them have been around for 40, 50 years. They've been through generations of best practices improvements. And some of these newer managers don't have that. And finally, there's another aspect that makes impact investing on top of it, even lower returning in emerging markets than traditional emerging markets investing. And I think that's The issue that some investors, I think, may intentionally or maybe unintentionally, but underwrite lower returns because of an impact or perceived impact. And I think generally most investors want to target market-based returns, but maybe they don't focus on it as much as a non-impact investor would. And I find that unfortunate because if returns are low, that means... It's not attractive for investors, and there is no reason for a trade-off to be between impact investing and non-impact investing. We can spend a lot of time talking about that as well, but if done the right way, there shouldn't be a trade-off. So the fact that empirically returns are lower means people are doing something wrong, right? It means on average, investors are overpaying for assets, and that is something that is fixable.
0: Wow, got so many ways to go with this. So basically you're saying that emerging market returns are weak which is fair for all these different reasons, wouldn't this investing better, like you said, right? So investing smarter, more diversified, with more experience and not overpaying, wouldn't that fix the problem? That's one. And two, isn't this investing in the emerging markets by its nature already impact? Because like you said, the opportunities are schools and teachers and infrastructure, all of that is impact, right? And I see that in my daily work. I'm like, everyone's like, oh, you're doing impact investing. And I'm like, well, this is what the country needs. So there's that piece. Right. And then the subset of it is, I can't help but ask, like, you are complying that when you say impact investing, it's just investing with extra steps. Or it could be used as a way to justify weaker returns to not be as rigorous as the earlier approach. So I know there's a lot of reaction, but those were the thoughts that came out of me and my mind when you said all of that. So could you share what you think about that?
1: Absolutely. I'll address them one by one. So your first question was basically, is it fixable? And I think the answer is absolutely yes. I think some of those issues will just naturally go better over time, right? One issue is the lack of experience or the lack of maturity of the industry, especially impact investing in emerging markets. That will naturally get better over time. The scale will hopefully also get better over time as managers grow and expand. But I think it also takes an additional approach, right? I think it also takes some of the more experienced managers or investors to enter this space and to bring their experience and their due diligence standards and high underwriting standards to these countries to also come with a diversified approach and an opportunistic approach where you don't just focus on one country, but you, you have an opportunistic approach to shifting your strategy from potentially one country or one industry to another. And that helps to diversify your currency risk and regulatory risk. And it's also a scalable strategy. So I think it's definitely fixable and I would love for that to happen. It's currently not happening and I can't really explain why because I find it such an attractive opportunity that I think is vastly unexplored or untapped, but I can't wait for that to happen because it's extremely exciting. It will bring a lot of development impact to a lot of people and a lot of countries and a lot of communities. And that I think is a great segue into your next question, which was, is there even a difference? Isn't every Investing in emerging markets and impact investment. I think there are some extra steps. I don't find them particularly prohibitive. And I think they generally should also not lead to low returns. I'm just taking it as one example. I know it's a little bit different, but in in developed markets, impact investing, impact investing and traditional investing actually have the same returns. They're equal. So when you look at the recent, call it five to seven year periods, um, impact investing in the US or in Europe have achieved the same 15 to 17% returns as traditional investing. So it is definitely possible to do that. And when you think about what defines impact investing, it's generally considered three things it's additionality, it's intentionality, and it's measurability. So when we start with additionality, it means you basically have to contribute capital and tie whatever outcomes you want to have to your investment. And that is generally achieved when you're a growth equity investor. It's harder to prove that when you're a buyout investor because you're buying somebody else out. But as soon as you contribute capital for a company to grow, in most cases, additionality is achieved. Measurability. Measurability just means you you measure whatever social outcomes you have. So whether that's patients treated or equality achieved or emissions saved or whatever it is. And that's actually something that is now not exclusive to the impact investing industry because a lot of traditional investors are starting to measure those things too. And I think that's actually very important. And it's increasingly demanded by LPs and allocators. And I think that's a good thing. So that's not necessarily anymore a feature of just the impact investing industry. So then the other point is the intentionality. And that's where it's a little bit different because intentionality means you have to be intentional about what you're doing. You can't just invest and then say, okay, we treated a lot of people that was an impact investment. You can't do that exposed. You have to do it ex ante. And that is a little bit of a difference, but I don't find it prohibitive because just the same way as you have different investing strategies, an infrastructure investor or a healthcare investor or a tech investor, nobody will say you're going to have lower returns because you're a health investor because you're missing out on, I don't know, manufacturing returns or whatever it is. It's just a different strategy. And and I think so is impact investing. And so uh, as long as you intentionally uh, declare where you want your impacts to be and whether that's in the healthcare space or in the education space or in the emission space, I think that makes a lot of good and thoughtful long-term investors, impact investors, if they have the right approach. And in that sense, it really should not be that different from a thoughtful growth equity investor in emerging markets in the first place. And now to your next question about extra steps. Yes, sometimes there are extra steps involved. So for example, if you're investing in a pesticide company, Sometimes pesticides are necessary, right, to to protect crops and and increasing needs to feed larger amounts of population and food security is a big problem. When you invest in such a company, you could have the, what now a lot of people view the ESG or the negative filter approach to say, well, I don't want to touch that. That's not how an impact investor thinks about it. An impact investor thinks, well, this is clearly necessary because there are more people and less arable land. So we need more pesticides, which we can't get around it. So how do we fix it? And how we fix it means you invest in a company and you help them get up to speed on phasing out toxic materials, on sourcing more sustainably, on disposing of waste the right way, of using proper PPE, of proper hiring practices, the right hazmats, all of these kind of things. And that might be a little bit annoying for the company in the short term, but in the long term, you're building a much fundamentally better company and a more sustainable company and a company that, that hopefully will not be in the newspapers for injuries or harmful chemicals. So that's how an impact investor thinks about it. And that takes time to to create, but it's obviously a lot of value created. And it's not just it's obviously financial value that's created because if you sell such a company to another investor or take it public, there should be a lot of interest for a company that's adhering to global standards. But also you're obviously creating a lot of impact to the local community. That's the beauty of it. And finally to your question of is it just an excuse for bad returns? I think, unfortunately, I think that happens often in the industry. And I think what the impact industry and emerging markets needs is more discipline. And that's more discipline from investors and from their investors, the LPs and the allocators. Because I think allocators should not simply accept low returns because of impact. Because it has really been proven at this point, there shouldn't be a trade-off. So you have to hold your manager, you have to hold your investors to the same high standards as you hold everyone else. So really impact should really not be an excuse for bad returns. And hopefully that will stop.
0: Well, there's a, there's a paradox slash crux of it, right? Which is impact investing, if done well, should be investing with a little bit more discipline, but really shouldn't change the fundamental return structure. Yet at the same point of time, impact re- investing returns are in practice lower than conventional investing, right, in emerging markets. Is that the real way to solve it from your perspective or you think it's just not solvable?
1: I think it is is very solvable. The solution is really in, A, applying higher standards and for investors, allocators to hold their funds and their managers to the same high standards. So higher discipline and enforcing this higher discipline and not accepting impact as an excuse for lower returns. So higher discipline is definitely, and, and it needs to be enforced. The other aspect is just simply experience. So, I mean, that will just grow over time. At least we would hope so. It is maturity. Like I said before, the emerging markets impact industry is pretty nascent. So as we're in this j curve in the early stages, it takes time for this value to be created. So that should also be alleviated over time. But also it goes back to the problem that I mentioned before. That's just an issue in emerging markets. And it's the problem of experience. And that can also be alleviated by more experienced funds and investors moving into this space. You've seen that in the developed markets where Blackstone and Neuberger Berman and LGT Partners Group and KKR and Bain Capital and TPG have moved into impact investing. And again, overall, the returns show that there is no trade-off there, but that has not really happened yet in emerging markets. And I wish for that to happen. I wish for all these impact funds, global managers that have really a strong talent pool and rigorous diligence and high standards to apply that to emerging and frontier markets impact investing. And that has not happened yet. And I hope that will happen soon.
0: You're painting a picture of the future, right? Of strong investing in emerging markets that creates returns. What is the one trend or action that would accelerate us towards that brighter future? And what would be conversely be the one thing that decelerates us? or prevents us from maybe potentially ever getting there in the future?
1: That's a great question. I definitely think an accelerator would be what I mentioned before, being developed markets, investors with a strong track record and underwriting standards and a strong talent pool to address this market. I think that would be almost the quickest fix that you can imagine. I can't fully explain why that hasn't happened yet. I think maybe there are more immediate closer to home and easier ways to achieve returns and make money. Maybe that's one reason, but I think eventually it will happen. I think people will eventually wake up to this opportunity and that is a way to make that happen faster. Now, what will decelerate it is almost any world event that you can imagine, because ironically, if developed markets are doing really, really well, and we've seen it over the last 10 years until recently, People storm into tech and Silicon Valley and, I don't know, pretty much any kind of investing because there's so much to do at home and in the U.S. So people are not really interested in emerging markets because there's so much to do in the U.S. Ironically, if the opposite happens and there's a market downturn and potential recession and risk, the first thing that people do is they don't want to invest the money abroad. They want to keep it at home. Almost whatever happens in the world, it will be a decelerator. But that's just investor psychology, and it doesn't really address the underlying potential. It doesn't diminish the underlying potential that is there. Regardless of what happens, there's going to be like a billion more people in 10 years that need education and infrastructure and and healthcare. I think it's almost a little short-sighted not to see that, but I guess it just happens sometimes with investors. Some investors, I guess, can be be short-sighted. But eventually, I hope that people will wake up to this opportunity set.
0: And... (sighs) For you've obviously talked about this experience gap, right, as something that's perhaps a point of divergence, right, between developed markets investors versus emerging market investors. And I think there's a bit of parallel for yourself, right, because you yourself was once a junior investor and now you're a senior investor, right, at both IFC as well as Bain Capital. So, what would you say are the biggest skill gaps that need to be addressed, or weeded out, or selected for? as part of that skill letter?
1: I think it also goes back a little bit to investor discipline, and that has obviously multiple facets. But just purely mathematically, if one strategy is achieving lower returns than another, that can be alleviated by paying less for the assets, right? Or the flip side could be you're simply overpaying for assets. That's just mathematical, right? So goes back to discipline of not overpaying for assets, not rushing into something. I think another skill that is necessary is really fundamental and thorough diligence. And that sounds very obvious. And I thought it was obvious, but it really isn't. I think I've seen a lot of emerging markets investing be thematically driven and per se have an issue with thematic investing because if done well and thoughtfully, that can also be a good style of investing. But I think there's too much of that happening and too little of like fundamental investing. And fundamental investing is tough. You need to do a lot of digging and a lot of thorough diligence and analysis, turning every table over three times, crossing every T and dotting every I, and it's hard and it's complex, and it's obviously an additional complexity to already complex emerging markets. But especially if you're writing larger check sizes and you're investing in mature companies, it is absolutely necessary. And I think Perhaps some investors have grown with the market. They started as early stage investors and then they just kept going with their investment strategy and philosophy as they write larger checks and invest in more mature companies. However, there's a very different style like investing in later stage companies is a very different investor style and approach than investing early stage. And I did the inverse of that, right? So I can tell the story of how the inverse of that happened because I'm a trade large cap or a mega cap buyout investor who now morphed more into kind of a or late stage growth equity investing or smaller check sizes and more growthy companies. And yeah, you would think on the face of it, yeah, you're trying to find a good business. How is that different? There's a lot of very different aspects to it. And I think that might not have been fully recognized by some investors.
0: You say all these things about how it means to be a better investor, right? Which is taking the time, paying less for weaker assets and paying more, obviously, for better assets and doing a due diligence, being thoughtful. And that's a very unpopular opinion, right? I mean, you know, every time I open up my Substack and <laughs> email newsletters, especially in like tech and growth equity, it's like founder friendly, you got to move quick. I literally had a founder sit down with me and like, hey, if a company is going to go big, then you should get in at any valuation, right? And I was like, but we don't know, right? It's hard, right? Building the future is hard, right? Much harder than most people think, right? help me cross bridge the gap here, right? Is every investor destined to be founder unfriendly based on this thing, right? Or what's the sweet spot that actually makes this, I don't know, marriage work between founders who are building the business versus equity investors?
1: I think you're addressing a great point, And I think this really goes straight to the heart of, of some of these issues, right? Is that as the company stage develops, the investor approach has to change. You know, a seed investor is very different from a Series A investor. It's very different from a Series B investor. And when you look at an earlier stage investor, somebody invests Series A and Series B, 5, 10, maybe 15 million checks, you have to be very founder-friendly and you have to be very founder-oriented because a lot of these companies are still very founder-driven. And that is totally fine. So I'm not disagreeing at all with this approach for earlier stage companies. But when you're moving into larger and later stage companies, when you're moving into kind of 30, 40, up to 60, 70 million check-sized tickets into Series C, Series D companies, the founder becomes a lot less important because at that point, you're looking for proper corporate governance, right? You're looking at succession and a board and a proper league of executives. And you actually want the founder to be a little bit de-emphasized for risk mitigation and succession and proper leadership, et cetera. So the style changes because... At that point, the board and the management and the company and the business model becomes a bit more important than the founder. And at that point, also, you have more track record to analyze, right? So you're not really focused as much on the track record of the entrepreneur because you at that point probably have five years of financials that you can analyze and look at off the actual company and extrapolate that. And if you're a Series A investor, you, you might not really have that or you might have just, you know, 500% growth last year and thousand percent before. It's really hard to extrapolate that. But when you're looking more in like a steady state scenario, then the historical financial track record becomes a lot more important and more analyzable. I think th- those are some of the reasons why the approach changes. So
0: I think there's a very good theoretical view right, of what that means, but it doesn't feel like that happened over the past few years, right? I mean, you know, a record number of unicorns were minted, right, primarily due to growth equity, right? And now this year, we're starting to see a lot of unicorns. What happens when a unicorn goes in reverse? I think they're minted, they're de-minted, they're de-horned, yeah. right? and they're decapitated, right? Like you said, there's a lot of really smart, disciplined investors all walking around the table, and then somehow it's like falling apart, right? So was it like maybe just like a broad, like macro, like this is maybe the Austrian economic side coming out? Interest rates were highly distortionary because of zero interest rates, so everybody was rational, but it was just all rationally doing it with the wrong yardstick, or is it because I think some people are saying like growth equity investors were just new to the tech game and so they just had to learn it. Or you're just saying it's just due to individual fund returns, right? It's Darwinism, dog eat dog, cat eat cat. This is part of the process of figuring out who's a smart and who's a less smart investor.
1: Yeah, I I think all of what you mentioned has been going on. And I think part of what has happened in emerging markets for the last few years and this run and, and all these unicorns is a lot of money has been going into tech. And that is not per se a a bad thing at this point. Like a lot of things are becoming tech. Pretty much everything is becoming tech, right? Healthcare is health tech and education is is ed tech, et cetera. But a lot of things I think have been going into kind of like pure tech platforms and have almost missed the real economy behind it. And a lot of money has gone into kind of flashy companies that, that sound really cool and moved really fast. And not all of those will be successful. Not all of those will be sustainable in their growth. And I think what has almost been neglected a little bit is the more traditional, maybe less trendy companies like manufacturing. A lot of manufacturing is now driven to India from a lot of companies changing the supply chain from China to India or to Vietnam. Precision engineering, it's not low quality manufacturing, it's high quality manufacturing. Some of these companies are growing 50, 60% a year. So that's not really what you would expect from a typical manufacturing company. So I think there are a lot of more like traditional industries that have been a little bit neglected that might have had a little bit less of a beta, less up, but also less down, just more like steady, heady growth and more sustainable growth in the end. So these are more the companies that, that I tend to focus on, and these are more the companies that see tends to focus on. And I think a lot of investors rushed into what I believe to a certain extent was a bit of a tech bubble of chasing unicorns, and then a lot of those kind of bubbles bursting and exploding. And I think that it also goes back to the point that I made before, where perhaps investors had their approach for series A investing, which again works really, really well when you're a 20 million Series A investor. But when you are writing 50, 60 million plus check sizes in a Series D, you have to change your approach. And I think a lot of investors did not change their approach. They did not become more more diligent, more thorough, more analytical. They just kind of kept going with a the thematic approach, which again sometimes works, sometimes doesn't, but I think there might have been too much of this thematic investing going on and too little of this okay, now we're looking at a $2 billion company. We're writing a large check. Maybe we should dig more into how we can make this sustainable and put in a proper board and proper governance and more sustainable financial growth.
0: So what's the consequence, obviously, of bad investing, right? Bad investing creates bad outcomes, maybe like companies grow in the wrong way or they have to do layoffs, things like that. But what else do you think are the societal consequences of, I guess, individual bad investing in that sense? or systematically bad investing?
1: I think you bring up a really, really great and important point. And you bring up something that is really dear to my heart. And I think to a lot of impact investors, a lot of emerging markets investors, because what might happen is you're creating like a negative spiral that bad investing is creating, right? So if you're generating lower returns, people will think, well, emerging markets are just a charity case and they're not really going to invest their capital there. So the local funds will stay small. Local investors are not going to gain experience. Invest returns will stay low. So you have trouble attracting and retaining talent because if returns are low, there's not going to go, you know, any big carry checks going around. So it's almost this like negative cycle. And I think that's really a tragedy. And I think that's almost what I see happening a little bit in emerging markets now is like you really have to break out of the cycle of negative return or poor returns leading to less capital flow, less capital flow, leading to low returns, leading to trouble attracting capital, leading to even worse returns. And so I think there are real negative effects from bad investing. And that's not just harming their investors or their returns, but it's also harming communities. because, as we said before, there is so much positive development impact that is possible through these investments. That's something that I think we all observe every day, how much you can really create simply by bringing capital here and having good returns and then attracting more capital and then having more companies grow and hiring more people and attracting more talent. And we really want to see this uh, spiral going up and not down. And so you bring up a really, really good point. And
0: obviously, there's a societal contract, right? I think investors get a lot of bad rap. It's like, you know, I see the memes and the investors are all in suits, <laughs> drinking wine, and wearing maybe Patagonia vests these days, especially for the growth equity folks, right? What, what do you think is a social contract that needs to happen, I think, or needs to be underscored or highlighted? Obviously, all investors should be good investors, if not for a good society, that at least, to continue having a job. But also, like even in that scenario, what does that arrangement or that partnership look like?
1: Yeah, I think there's a lot of philosophical thought now being brought into the investment community. And I think that's a very good thing because people are thinking beyond simply financial returns, but also the broader impact that their investment have. And there are a lot of studies, even historically, that show even before we actually started caring about these things that private equity-led companies actually grow more or hire more people and actually lay off fewer people in downturns because they're more long-term thinking. I don't want to quote any of those studies. I don't have them at hand, but there are a bunch of studies that actually show positive impacts of private equity. But you always hear the negative stories because that's more sensationalist, right? you hear about this private equity fund that stripped the company dry and then sold it and still somehow made money. That is so incredibly rare. Um, And I'm not defending, I mean, there's obviously like bad actors in every industry. they are bad lawyers and bad doctors and bad private equity investors that give us all a bad rep. And so I think it's good that there is a bit of like a house cleaning going on or first eliminating the bad actors because they, they have a bad effect on people and on the industry because they give everyone a bad rep. But also because generally bad private equity investment is also not sustainable. It's like when you explain it to people who don't understand private equity, right? It's like, Okay, so if you strip a company dry, how are you going to sell it? You only make money if you sell it for a profit, right? So, so it's actually very rare to strip an asset and still make money. It's very rare that it will actually happen. So generally, a private equity investor only makes money if you do hire more people and do have more sales and actually grow and make it a more sustainable company in the long run. But I think what the industry is now trying to do is trying to say, like, how can we do that while also looking a little bit more about what effects our investment have and can we have a more positive impact on society without necessarily sacrificing returns. And I think that's actually the case and that's true. And I think there's actually a positive alpha from that being created. I mean, when you just think about ESG, right, if you break it up into environmental, social, and governance, yes, there, there might be some fluff around it and there's a lot of rethinking in this industry. Is it worth it or is it not worth it? But if you just think about this individually, Environmental diligence, maybe in the 80s, that was a hippie thing to do. Now every private equity fund in the world does environmental diligence, just simply for risk management. Governance, a lot of companies fail simply because there's no proper governance there. So yes, it's proper investing and proper risk mitigation to have proper governance. Similarly in social aspects, that's not necessarily an esoteric concept, but if you attract the right people, if you attract a good talent pool, That means you have to create an attractive work environment that's not hostile to to women or minorities to attract the best talent to your companies. You don't want to be a front page of the Wall Street Journal for mistreating your employees. So all of those are actually really important fundamental factors that I think now are being integrated more into mainstream investing as it is because people are realizing, hey, there's more to that. It's not just an esoteric concept. It actually focuses us and forces us to think more sustainable and think more long-term. And so I think this rethinking in the industry is, is having positive long-term effects. And
0: you shared about these growth equity fundamentals, which really advocates what that active approach, right? Hands-on in terms of due diligence, in terms of corporate governance. And there's also a very strong push for a passive approach, right? One is active, highly concentrated, do a lot of work versus passive, spread it out. Some people may even call it spray and pray. Are you like, what, an active camp or I guess what scenarios would lean more towards one or the other? Yeah.
1: Yeah, So when you say passive, there is some approach and maybe more the public uh, investing domain on this ESG investing and ESG index funds. I, I have trouble really seeing the impact behind that. It might be there. I personally, as a private investor, I have trouble seeing a lot of that being really driving a lot of like positive change. I personally think that an active approach is required to have, to have positive impact. And this also goes back to you know, the example that we mentioned before, where a more passive investor might simply say, oh, I don't touch pesticides because that's bad. But an active investor says, well, hey, they're actually necessary and let's actually do it the right way and make a sustainable company. And that's how we create impact and build value. When it comes to like, the spray and pray approach, this goes back to what I mentioned before about thematic investing. And I don't think that's bad per se, because I think in general, any dollar of growth capital that you bring to emerging markets is a win. Any additional dollar that goes into hiring more people and building more and hiring talent and building more infrastructure is a win. So if this is done for a spray and pray approach, that's not necessarily bad. But I think it's certainly limited because you only see the fast growing industry, the trendy ones, those that are growing fast. You might say, okay, e-commerce is big. So now I'm going to invest in like five e-commerce companies in Indonesia. And then I don't think there's anything wrong with this investment approach, because like I said, you are bringing new capital to these countries. That is a positive thing, but you're missing out on a lot of stuff. You're missing out on fundamental companies that might not be in those industries, or you might be missing out on this one company that's actually better than all of the others. And so I think this brain prey approach just misses a lot. And I think that's what's happening a little bit in the emerging markets. There's maybe too much of that happening, and too little of finding the gems happening.
0: Oh, you you may be excited because I think it's fair, right? Which is I think an active approach. Actually, <laughs> you're making the social impact case for active investing is a better corporate citizen and societal citizen, right, than a passive investing. It's just that you are very expensive, right? I guess it just reminded me. So the crux of passive investing is like that board member is very expensive. That due diligence is very expensive. The returns are just fundamentally better if you just cut out Clemens and Jeremy (laughs) and all these folks. just put money in, right? And let the team figure it out. I guess I think active versus passive has been, I don't know, it feels like the war has been won for a returns perspective or passive, at least on the developed market side. Is that a feature you think of developed versus emerging markets? If there's a lot of information symmetry, passive approach generally tends to be better for returns, but in low beta markets or high information asymmetry markets, active investing is better. Is that how we should think about it?
1: Perhaps that's true. I mean, I think the, the passive investing works for some industries and just doesn't work for others or it doesn't work as well. If it works for high growth tech, that might very well work, right? But it might not work for manufacturing. And vice versa. And I think the onus on the active investor is to justify this additional layer of, like I said, additional diligence and additional thoroughness or whatever it is. But ideally, you are creating value, right? So if you say, like, for example, okay, you're investing in this pesticide company. First of all, like I said, there are economies of scale, right? So if you are investing a 3 million check, it's going to be very hard to justify all this like, additional diligence and like thoroughness because it will be hard to, for that to, to pay off in a small check. But if you're investing a 50 million check, then that makes it a lot more worth it, right? And at that point, also creating an additional multiple or two evaluation from this value that you're creating also matters a lot, right? So at that point, you are helping build a better company. So you're not just relying purely on, okay, the company's executing well, they're growing revenues and they're growing their EBITDA, but actually the company will be worth a higher multiple of EBITDA at exit because you're doing all these active things you're creating a more valuable company through that. That trade-off definitely has to happen. And I've seen it happen. I, I guess I always data on that, that I have to dig out somewhere. But I think it's just some industries is more conducive than for others.
0: On that note, could you share with us a time that you personally have been brave?
1: <laughs> That's a great question. I mean, I think a few years ago, I would have probably said coming to America. Um, because I grew up in Austria and I didn't know anyone here and I didn't have a network or professional advice here. So that was a little bit scary at first. But now I would probably say it was moving into growth equity, development, finance, or investing with impact and leaving bank capital. I think that was a tough decision to make. It's kind of, are you willing to, at least in the near term, forego some financial upside for following your heart and following your passion? And that's what I chose. So I hope that was brave.
0: And if you had a time machine to go back 10 years in time, right? When you were just like starting out as an investor and you had that time travel machine to see yourself, buy yourself a cup of coffee. What advice would you give that younger self or yourself?
1: I do think it is important that you do what you enjoy doing. Obviously you have to make enough money to sustain your life and feed your family and get your kids into a good school but in the end i don't think you should be doing anything that that you hate where you just can't wait to go home and just look forward to the next vacation or worse to retirement i think you do have to do something that gets you out of bed in the morning that excites you and if i won the lottery really really big and had a lot of money at hand i would still be doing exactly the same thing i'm doing now because i really really enjoy doing it yeah maybe i would just go back and tell myself that same story and make myself feel better about the decisions that are made. Because so I, I, I do think it is really important to do something that you genuinely enjoy doing.
0: Thank you so much, Clemens. So I'd love to summarize the three big themes from this conversation. The first, of course, is thank you so much for sharing about developed versus emerging markets like Southeast Asia in terms of returns. And I think the dynamics that drive weaker returns, right? For example, from experience to scale to diversification. I think that was really a masterclass, I think, really of sketching out the landscape about what's going on and why it's not being arbitraged or fixed immediately, right? The second is really about the paradox of impact investing. On one hand, I think we can look at impact investing as investing with a thoughtful eye, yet not necessarily huge trade-offs or any trade-offs on the returns profile. Yet, in practice, impact investing has been weaker in emerging markets. And I think that was a very I don't know sobering yet I think frank discussion because I think there's so many people who are really rooting for impact investing but also honestly like disappointed about how it's going as well. Lastly, thanks for talking about the fundamentals of growth equity, obviously about how investors are learning the benefits of active versus passive approach, but also I think the skill set and mindset changes that needs to be done for example entering new verticals like technology or WebTree or whatever it is as well as like the new mindset needed to enter new markets, right? Like emerging markets and other industries. On that note, thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Thank you, Jeremy. Appreciate it.
0: Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up at www.jeremyow.com to discuss this episode with other community members in our forum.
1: Stay well and stay brave.